0: Welcome to episode 18 of reading the realms the book club podcast where we're reading every published novel in the forgotten realms this month's book drum roll, please is homeland by r.a Salvatore, the first novel of the dark elf trilogy i'm your host max and with me is my co-host paula hey everybody so after much anticipation we are finally here we are finally reading Winnet. dark elf trilogy Woo-woo. we've been we've been really hyping this one for a while i think
1: <laughs> the hype is real though it's such a good book
0: yeah it it definitely in a lot of respects it definitely holds up i think Um, i was i was honestly kind of surprised because i've been i've been a little down on some of the books lately just in terms of how well they hold up today and there are definitely parts of dark elf that are very i have many of many of the same problems i have with the other forgotten realms novels of this time i also have with dark with homeland and i'm assuming probably with the rest of the trilogy but in a lot of ways, this is a much more well-written book than the others that we've read lately. And also, it shows a tremendous amount of growth from the author from where we last left off with the Halfling's Gym at the end of the Icewind Dale trilogy. Because that, that was a rough book to get through. And this one was... It is
1: a knockout. I, this is a yeah. fucking knockout.
0: I, I read this one oh, probably so faster good. than faster than any book we've done so far it's a short book it's really like a fast read too i mean it's like it the pace of the of the story is just like boom 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 like there's just constantly something happening it's very well plotted
1: and it's really well written because you have these massive time jumps but you don't even get mad about it you ain't even mad it's okay
0: no, because you yeah, know it's it, leading
1: up to something way better than whatever he was gonna write for that shit.
0: Yeah, so I want to do. We've done some background on on Salvatore, but I was actually able to find an interview that he did with the Geeks Guide to the Galaxy podcast, which is another really fantastic science fiction and fantasy book podcast. They interview. They do a ton of author interviews, and they did one a while back uh, with Salvatore. And if you haven't ever listened to them, you should definitely go and check that podcast out because it's fantastic. I listen to them every week, um, and I'd forgotten that they had done this interview. But they went into a lot of his background of how he became a writer, and I just wanted to wanted to share a little bit of that. They go into a lot more detail on the podcast, but I, I wanted to share some of what they what it, what he had to say on there. He said that he did love to read as a child but had that love, quote, beaten out of him by what he had to read for school all through, I guess, elementary, middle, and high school. Which I know a lot of people like that who really do enjoy reading or did enjoy reading at some point in time but then had to read all kinds of classical crap for school that just like when you're in middle school and you have to read – you know, Shakespeare and some of that stuff. It's you just, you know, you don't care about that sort of thing. It's not relevant to you. It's not the
1: book that got me that like almost killed my love of reading. I'm going to tell you all right now was James Joyce's portrait of an artist as a young man. (laughs) I wanted to die on every page of that book. I wondered if I killed myself, if I could get out of reading it. Somehow I did not think so. So I sucked it up and bullshit my way through that class because who, what, 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 what 15 year old needs to be reading that? I mean, seriously. Anyway, I just, that's a little side note. We all have one book and that was mine. Just, oh.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think.
1: who wants to punish themselves, just take, (laughs) just take that up, man. Just, mm.
0: I, I will say probably as a 15 year old and also as a woman, I, I could would totally understand why James Joyce's work would be completely unappealing to you. But in his defense, as an adult, I have read some Joyce, especially his, in particular his short stories. And it is very good. It, he is, oh, he no, is, absolutely.
1: As an adult, I can very much appreciate his writing. But, like, as a 15-year-old, that's not the shit yeah. you're trying to get me to read, kid. Mm-mm. No, no.
0: That is not yeah. what
1: my focus should be.
0: No, and the, the problem with... There there are myriad problems with books that kids are forced to read in school. And one of the biggest ones is the authorship of those is not the least bit diverse. It's mostly old white men talking about old white men problems. And like to most kids, that's today, that's just completely irrelevant.
1: One of the best books that I read in high school, though, was called Yellow Wrapped on Blue Water. That was a very good book. It's a, a three generational book about Native American women, kind of their different life stories. Very well written. Highly recommend. Mm, oh, Even great. as an adult, I enjoyed it.
0: Thankfully, after Salvatore went into college, he was given, or he was gifted one Christmas, copies of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, in 1978 and during a snow day at school he w- just picked he didn't He didn't like reading at this point he says but he picked them back up and basically blew through them or most of them in that day and then fell back in love with literature and reading, went back to school and changed his major from uh, whatever science or math it was to communication so that he could study and read books again and because he, he fell back in love with it. Thank thank goodness. Um, he wrote his first novel while he was working in just this dead-end job, it sounds like, at a plastics factory during the day. And while, I think a lot of people know this, while he was a bouncer at a nightclub by night, yep. and then he'd he'd write when he got home in like the late hours of the evening when he couldn't fall asleep. And this book actually turned into Echoes of the Fourth Magic and that wouldn't be published until 1990 by uh, a different publisher. But then of course, we all know that he pitched this to TSR. I think we talked about this in the, the Icewind Dale episode. He pitched this, he put, pitched Echoes of the Fourth, Fourth Magic, bleh, I can't talk, to TSR and of course they were not interested because because they were trying to get Forgotten Realms up and started, and then that's what got him a, an audition to write Icewind Dale. So we should also point out another really interesting thing I think he mentions in this interview that is very relevant to a lot of these books, and certainly to me when I was reading them, is that his experiences of being picked on in middle and high school informed a ton of his thinking behind uh, Drizzt as a character. And I think it's it seems, it, when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes that just really kind of fits all the pieces in place it makes so much sense why this character appeals to you know little loser kids like me who who got picked on a lot in middle school and you know didn't have a lot of friends and stuff and it it that that makes so much sense um
1: i too was 100 percent in the picked on friendless club so welcome to team nerd
0: because that's what it means
1: to be a real nerd not a hipster nerd (laughs) if you didn't get bullied mercilessly can you even call yourself a nerd i mean for real anyway not important but yes no i agree it he definitely kind of has that every man feel of all the things we wish that we had been yeah we wish the world had been to us and i think that that does come across really strongly
0: yeah that Driz has all the strength that you wish you had, had had at that time and um yeah shout out to all the all the people picked on and in school, all the nerds who were losers back then, because now nerds run the world, so it's pretty nice, actually. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so another thing that is also very interesting, Paula that I would like to point out to you, he says that when he's writing, he's a very slow reader. He doesn't read much. So when he does read, he's very slow at it while he's writing his <laughs> books. So to to all the other slow readers out there, that felt like a little bit of vindication.
1: <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. It's just the way I'm wired. I just crunch that, that info real quick.
0: So he says uh, part, partly this is because he doesn't want what he is reading to influence what he's writing, which I understand you wouldn't want a lot of cross-contamination. But also, you know, a lot... It, if you, if you don't follow Salvatore on Twitter, he's actually a very interesting and a very smart guy, too. Like, he is very aware of politics and everything that's going on in the world right now and has a lot of really, I think, very intelligent opinions on a lot of things. He's uh, way more than just a writer. He's a very, very intelligent thinker, too. So shout out to, to him on Twitter. But um, just to get into a little bit of the book background, he wrote this trilogy because after Icewind Dale, it was pretty clear to everybody at that point that uh, Drizzt was the hero of the book, even though he wasn't quite set up that way from the beginning, but he was the character that everyone wanted to know more about. Salvatore and TSR received letters from fans asking to know more about him and his background, and TSR pretty much immediately greenlit the project because they, they saw that this would be a huge seller. In terms of background on the drow and drow society, Uh, There really wasn't that much early on Salvatore created so much of it in his writing of the books and also other supplement materials for the game. Uh, really, all that he had to go on at the very beginning were the three early modules, Descent into the Depths of the Earth, Vault of the Drow, and Queen of the Demon Web Pits, which I actually, I think I own Queen of the Demon Web Pits and possibly Vault of the Drow. I need to go back and reread through some of those. And then the old uh, folio hardcover book, which I do definitely own a copy of, and it's a very cool book. Those helped him to come up with ideas for Drow Society, but... He also just made a lot of stuff up on his own, and one thing that he talks about that he did draw on to base the structure of the society around, because as we all know, it's a really completely fucked up society in so many ways, and it's very, so, so very evil. He actually based a lot of it on The Godfather by Mario Puzo, which I've never read, and I've also never seen the movies, which, don't at me about that, I do not want to hear it. Um, Oh,
1: right, no, not a Godfather fan, not interested, thank you.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's not for everybody. I've never seen it. I don't really care one way or the other. But apparently, he kind of based the ruling families, the matriarchal families, around the ruling uh, mobster families that are shown in The Godfather. So I thought that was. I could
1: kind of 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 see that. I get like a thuggish feel from some of the other matrons. I could see that.
0: Yeah, definitely. So. Uh, Paula, what is your copy of, of Homeland? Because I do not have just a... I have the collected uh, edition of the Dark Elf trilogy like I do of most of the trilogies. What What is your copy that you were reading?
1: I have got the... Uh, well, so here's the funny story. I also have the collected version. However, it's currently on loan to one of my other D&D party members. So I went out and bought a new one because that's just how I roll. And you can never have too many copies of a book. So... I have the 2004 re-release of the Legend of Drist book series. Book one, Homeland. The new one, yeah.
0: Yeah, they kind of re-released them in the Legend of Drist uh, kind of overarching uh, style. Well, and yeah, just
1: they have like 25 books. Yeah,
0: because there's so many of them. I had never really looked up what the original cover art is for the original First edition Homeland, and it's very weird. It's it's by Jeff Easley, and then of course all the subsequent cover rights are done by Todd Lockwood because he does tons of Salvatore stuff and tons of drist stuff. But it's not. I wouldn't say it's a great cover. It looks like it's some sort of wizard or possibly drist It's really hard to tell. There's a lot of yellow. There's a lot of purple, and he doesn't even really have that dark of skid on the cover. Which, seeing how things have sort of progressed with the Drow, may be a good thing but it looks like there's also kind of the towers of the city in the background and then of course guinevere is there perched on something as well it's kind of an odd cover um and it's not a very large painting either and then of course for your version i think it's Drizzt and guinevere there among a bunch of mushrooms is that correct
1: uh yes it sure is and there's yeah. like part of the city spires in the background which is actually very pretty by the way
0: lots of purple
1: <laughs> indeed i like it yeah I like the drower though, so it works for me.
0: Yeah, the drow are really into their purple. That's how they're usually portrayed a lot of the time, as having lots of purple. I think um, it's
1: kind of because they have that royalty-esque vibe where they want to portray that, and so that's why they kind of pull on that purple royalty string.
0: Yeah, and so that one was done, like we said, by Todd Lockwood. He would go on to do most of the Driz. And Salvatore Forgotten Realms covers after Jeff Easley, I think was maybe I should go and look in my my history of d and d book that I own, but I think he was maybe an in-house illustrator, and so he was doing a lot of the covers at this time. he we talked about how he's I think he was doing covers for some of our other I think he did the Mastika trilogy. I don't have a copy of that in front of me, but I think maybe he was the one doing those as well. So just to read the original back cover blurb, because I'm sure it's changed plenty of times, but I did get a my hands on the original blurb. It says... Travel back to strange and exotic Minzo Berenzin, the vast city of the drow and homeland to Icewind Dale hero Drizzt Duarden, the young prince of a royal house. Drizz grows to maturity in the vile world of his dark kin. Possessing honor beyond the scope of his unprincipled society, young Drizz faces an inevitable dilemma. Can he live in a world that rejects integrity? And then that's actually it. <laughs> it ends <laughs> on a question. Yeah. Very so.
1: ambiguous and awkward. Good, good.
0: Very very quick back cover blurb, I mean, especially for some of these that have, like, multiple paragraphs on the back cover. This, I think that sums it up pretty nicely.
1: Yeah, mine says, uh, Station is the paradox of the world of my people, the limitation of our power within the hunger for power. It is gained through treachery and invites treachery against those who gain it. Those most powerful and Menzo spend their days watching over their shoulders, defending against the daggers that would find their backs deaths usually come from the front just jordan
0: yeah one of his many many journal entries so i think we actually
1: wasn't that bad because it's only at the beginning of each section unlike ice dale or is it the beginning of like every freaking chapter i wanted to punch somebody out
0: so i i think we can go ahead and jump into the plot
1: uh it starts off giving us a very nice little view into the dynamics of Menzo Branson, which is basically that the city is uh, matriarchal, and that everyone are giant assholes. And that's really all you need to know about them. They are backstabbing and conniving and will do whatever it takes to gain power.
0: It's a society where, I think, maybe if you think about it too hard, it probably falls apart, but where everyone is trying to kill everyone else all the time, and there are very few rules, and the Few rules that do exist just barely manage to hold this place, hold everything in place.
1: The starting entry that we kind of lead into the book with is two things are happening at once. We have one of the houses higher up the food chain, having their demise orchestrated by the Dwardens. And subsequently, while that's also happening, we have Matron Malice, which by the way is just a... Dope name. Good choice on that. Matron Malice who's giving birth to drist He is fighting his way into the world.
0: I think it's very interesting the the function of the one house going to war with another house and having to wipe out that house entirely so that there's no survivors so that nobody can accuse anyone else of attacking them or committing a crime, basically, because it's still mm-hmm. considered a crime. But I wanna know like what is the in the, what is the point system for like determining the order of houses? Cause that's not gone into here. Maybe there's some other book or some other material that references like how they actually determine what the, how they, how they rank the houses. Cause the Dewar did start out the book in, I think they're the 10th house. And then, once they go to war with the Devers, they become, spoilers obviously, they become the ninth house. Mm-hmm. And then their goal is to get onto the ruling council, which seems to be the, the top like, eight. The, it, well, it is the top eight, yeah. And it's the kind of, they're called the ruling council, but they don't seem to have a ton of political power. They're just the most influentially powerful houses. But like how, you know, it doesn't seem to be made up purely of strength in numbers it just it, a lot of it seems to be influence. but then obviously the most powerful house has not only strength in numbers but influence and favor with loth and all kinds of stuff so I, i'd love to know and what I the system that, is behind ranking these guys
1: i think that that favor with loth is where that ranking system comes from and part of it i think probably has to do with their household size because one of the things that they talk about when or like just very briefly touching on a further point, when the academy comes to destroy the house of and Duis, Matron Malice is thinking to herself about whatever she evil thing she's thinking about, and one of the things she's thinking is that the house uh, Bainry or whatever is going to take in the surviving female heirs. And add them as clerics to her household. And she basically thinks to herself, like, yeah, does that bitch need any more than 16? Like, come on now. And so I think that that may also play into it, too. Like, amount of clerics and priestesses that you have to Loth. Your favor standing with Loth and things like that.
0: Yeah, I I think you're right. It has a lot to do with it. But we should... We should turn our focus back because I think it's really cool how the story we're this is Driz's backstory and it starts before he's even born, which if you've ever re- read The World According to Garp is if you're gonna do somebody's life story, starting before they are born is the way to go. Yeah, it definitely
1: adds a kind of an interesting little little ting that you wouldn't get otherwise. So we have uh so obviously House Jordan just demolishes House Devere because that's just how it's got to be. House D'Ordan moves up in rank. Drist is born. Yay! And then his family tries to sacrifice him. <laughs> because that's the kind of world he lives in. His family was given a prophecy that the second son basically needed to be sacrificed to law. But then the oldest brother died in the fight against House Devere so then Mat- Matron Malice was like, wait, don't sacrifice Drist, though. Because maybe we've already appeased Loth. And maybe if we sacrifice him, that'd be a mistake. And that's what she settles on, despite protests from her daughters. And so they decide, oh, we'll put down the ceremonial sacrificial knife. And we won't kill our, like, literally minutes-old baby Drist.
0: Yeah, it's it's an insane thing. And it's also, like... For them to think like, well, one dead, one body's as good as another, as long as people are dying, to interpret the will of this like insane evil god, I, it just—it seems like, I mean, like most religion, quite frankly, it's built on very shaky ground, <laughs> but right. it. it it just seems like, well, one, one body's as good as the next. And so Drizzt is, is spared at the last moment, and his oldest brother is killed, which makes him the second boy of the house. And then his older brother, uh, whose name I forget right now, is uh, becomes the first boy. Yeah, and so even tough. within the houses, there's a lot of ranking going on. Yes,
1: I would agree with that. So he doesn't get sacrificed. That's great. He, I mean, that would be a really sad ending to the book. <laughs> that aside, so then we kind of like start shoehorning in this other side story. Uh, there's a mage with the Academy Sorcery, which is the Wizard Academy in the Underdark. For those of you that didn't know, which I hope all of you knew that, because I recently learned that actually, not from reading this book, by the way. I had a blonde moment and was like my D D group. I wonder if there's uh, like schools and stuff in the Underdark. And someone was like, well, yeah, of course, there's the ones in menzo And I was like, what schools? And then we circled back to the fact that I'd even read the book and I should know they exist. But anyway, that's not important here. So one of the on-site masters called the Faceless One has an apprentice named Misoge Hunet. They are doing stuff in his lab when Alton Devere shows up. The Faceless One tries to kill him because as part of the plan to wipe out House Devere and, as you were talking about earlier, removing any possible accusers by leaving no witnesses, the Dewardens convince the Faceless One to work with them and to kill Alton for them. Well, Mesoge is an asshole and kills the Faceless One in the middle of this fight and is basically like, Ha ha, now you owe me, Alton. And then, because this is the messed up society that they have, instead of Alton just being like, oh my god, this guy tried to kill me, I should tell an authority figure, they decide that he's going to assume the Faceless One's identity, which means that he needs to be held down and have his face burned off with acid.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I guess if it's between death and, you know, living, but having to have your face burned off with acid, that's one of those, like party questions where it's like which would you rather but you know i guess fair fair enough if he if he wants to continue on living so alton assumes the identity of the faceless one in, in kind of a neat twist and this kind of just goes to show from the very beginning of the book some a theme throughout the book and throughout drow society pretty much that drow are just schemy as all hell <laughs> they are constantly scheming
1: And they're definitely in it for the long game like these are not and I think actually that kind of interestingly gets brought up in the Mastika trilogy with the ancient ones, which is that like they're not afraid of like a five year, a 10 year, a 50 year, a 100 year long game. They don't give a shit. Alton's like, I will sit here and be the faceless one and I will learn everything I need to know about all my enemies and I don't care how long it takes. That's some dedication right there. That's like next level dedication, and I can really appreciate that.
0: It's because Drower, so I think they said in this book they live somewhere in the neighborhood of 900 years. So, you know, 50 years is nothing, I and mean, even 100 years really isn't isn't a whole hell of a long time. And Not to
1: bring down your enemy like your freaking lifelong enemy. Yeah, I'll dedicate 100 years to that.
0: Yeah, Alton basically dedicates his life to avenging his family and his house, and that is pretty much the main driver of, of the plot of this book which I mean really if you're going into this when I originally read it which it's hard to th- even think back to that but it, it's such a cool driver for a plot I mean you could I don't know what they're gonna do for the d d movie but these books are plotted the Salvatore books are plotted so well they are so fast they are plotted like a movie this could easily be the movie you'd have to change a few things but it, it would make a, a fantastic first movie just because it's so like I don't know. It just moves. It's just it's not something you would really expect from from an origin story. I feel like
1: it has its own like life of pacing, which I enjoy. So while we are messing around with Alton and they're scheming and just being little schemy drows, Matron Malice gets summoned to Matron Bain Ray's house. And kind of we reveal her ambitions of that Matron Malice wants to move up one more house station, get a spot on the council. That'll make her feel like she has some sort of power. Blah, blah, blah. I don't really care about Matron Malice's plans here, to be real with you. Because I just care about Driss. This is he is what interests me. So as Driss continues to age, we see, especially within the first five years of his life, that Driss A has Kind of an innocence and a stubbornness that isn't typical of male drow, but that they, his sister who raises him, proceeds to try to beat that shit out of him.
0: Yeah, she. I mean, the the drow priestesses all carry these uh, three headed snake whips that can. Maim you at best and can kill you at worst, and it's kind of funny that Driz's sister—I I think it's Maya—is the one who is tasked with rearing him because the mom just can't be bothered. You know, she's supposed to be the the quote unquote nice sister, and she's still like this horrible person. They kind of show flashes of like maybe she has some doubts, but because she's a priestess at this point, like she's pretty she's too far gone to really kind of come back and be redeemed in any way. But it's it's kind of funny how most people in, in school will take some sort of, have some little bit of sociology introduced to them, and there's always the question of nature versus nurture, and obviously the drow nurturing is completely evil and malicious, and they teach you to be as bad as you can all the time, but that is countered pretty hard, it seems like, by Drizzt's nature, and he, that seems to sort of win out over any of any of the teachings and ways that he's being brought up.
1: I would agree. I think that it really does kind of show that nature versus nurture in a way that a lot of the books don't touch on, as far as like you were talking about, that psyche development that we're going through. Because a lot of the stories that we're reading aren't talking about these people from the time that they're born. We're kind of jumping in anywhere from 10 to 25 or older. We're not getting that entire child rearing window escape as we're going by the middle of the book. Anyway, he gets beaten a lot because he's a stubborn little shit. However, he very quickly shows that he has an aptitude for fighting and his father he basically proves to Matron Malice that he needs to go to Melee Magthair and be trained to be a sword fighter. The greatest right.
0: fighter there ever will be. And this is also another nature versus nurture thing because Zach Zach Nefane, his Zach for short, is his father, like you said, and he is con- widely considered to be the greatest weapons master in in the city currently. And so, of course, his son, Is gets that same natural aptitude for fighting and and using swords and weapons and everything. It's, again, that whole nature, you know, Drizzt's nature wins out. And we should also say, Zacnafain, also not a fully evil dwarf, which plays into a good deal of the tension and drama, especially in the latter half of the book. All right, here with just a quick little side note. Yes, I did just mistakenly call Zacnafain a dwarf. He is a drow. Paula called me out on it when we were in recording and that sent us off on a whole wide tangent. So I will just say right now, Paula was correct. He is a drow, not a dwarf, obviously. And let's get back to our discussion.
1: So Driss moves in with him and Zach trains him to 19, basically turning him into like a little killing machine. His own mother, even despite hating Driss to the bottom of her soul, even says like i mean he's already better than half the people at the academy so
0: <laughs> yeah it is, it's, what it is they they have to kind of respect someone who's so good at at fighting and killing and something else i wanted to mention too is that until he does turn 19 and his story at the he kind of goes into like the middle section of the book where he moves to the academy and starts fighting and learning there this is as much zack's story as it is driz's story i feel like you get you know, because a a child is not the most interesting thing in the world to be perfectly honest, and so the Salvatore focuses a lot on malice and on Zach and on some of the other stuff. A lot of the drama of the early story really does come from Zach Nefane. and we explore we go into a lot of detail about who he is, and I think that's that's pretty smart, given the fact that. You know, a kid is a kid is a kid and can only really do so much. So you have to have some adults in the room who are who are interesting to, to read about.
1: I think it also really gave Salvatore the chance to frame up exactly what kind of society Drist is being brought up in before jumping into Drist's story because trying to explain the emotional burden that Driss carries and the interpersonal development that he goes through a- across all three of the these origin books. On top of trying to like show you how evil the city is at the same time, I think would just be overwhelming and we wouldn't be very happy about it. But devoting the first hundred pages to basically just grinding his ass to a decent level... And showing us how bad the city is by, like you were saying, using those other adults to be kind of our window into the other workings of the city—it's just such a smart play. So good.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot about this plot where you're like, "Oh, I never would have expected that," but it just works so well. Yeah.
1: Anyway, he is shown at nineteen, right before he is about to enter into the academy. The real brutality of the city, which is that house we Doyce. Tekken Doyce? Anyway, they attempted a coup against one of the other houses that was above them, and they failed. So the Academy shows up, summons demons and shit, and they literally level this entire building to nothing but flaming
0: ashes. All the
1: people inside as well. And Driss really is kind of shook. Yeah,
0: it's a pretty brutal... There's a lot of brutal violence in this book, but this one is particularly kind of kind of rough.
1: Yeah, it it's a painful scene to watch, but I definitely think it's a necessary one because we see how crappy the city is, but we're also seeing what sort of viper pit we're about to send Drist into, which is a good setup because you really start to wonder like how much of Drist's personality is going to get tested, and it gets tested very quickly. So, as kind of a side note of things happening, message Message. Message. Hanet brings Alton to his mother, explains the whole sort of situation of what happened, their deception, all that good business. And she's like, I will right, we'll adopt you. You're now on our side and basically our little spy. Go back there and learn what you can. So Alton now kind of has family protection as well as direction for getting that vengeance that he's seeking and sets his eyes on learning everything that he can about Drist once he comes to the academy. Well, Drist, meanwhile, his sisters and his mother, they wait until Zack is not in the compound and before they send him off to the academy, they force him into one-on-one combat and to kill another drow which he's never done before, he's never taken a life, and this was a very profound and life-changing moment for him.
0: I think what is, in, and it is, and it's they really kind of make them, again, very schemy about it. What sort of undercuts this, it's a little, I found it a little funny, is that it, it's all, I think it is kind of written to be a little funny too, which which also undercuts the seriousness of how much it fucks up Drizzt, his, his like mental health, is that he doesn't, it's not actually a drow that he's killing, It is a goblin that malice has like shape changed into looking like a trowel. Yeah. And is told that if you, if you kill, they tell the goblin drow that if you kill this guy, then we'll make you a full drow and you can, you know, you won't be a slave anymore. And so he's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to kill him. That should be easier. That's what I want to do now. And then Driz, you know, dispatches with him pretty quickly. And one, it doesn't make any sense necessarily that they wouldn't just find some random lowly drow and be like, hey, you need to fight this guy to the death or we'll kill you. Like, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of dumb that they have to find a goblin to do this, but Whatever. It's it's a very silly scene, but it also goes a long way. There are a lot of marker points in this book where, like, this is something that Drizzt is using to kind of build his case very slowly. It builds up against, like, why his his people and the society that he grew up in are evil. And this is just, like, one more of those steps along the road where, like— The straw forced... that's just
1: breaking the camel's back. Here we go.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's forced by—imagine if your parents, you know, set you down and said— Look, in order for us to continue loving and caring for you, we need you to kill someone. <laughs> like that's basically <laughs> yeah. what happens.
1: Yeah, at twenty years old. So listen, kid, you can keep living here, but there's a price to
0: pay. <laughs> yeah, take taken out of the context of this of the book, like, that's insane, you know? It's it's yeah. just kind of crazy. It's almost like laughably. Laughably funny, but to the degree that it continues to screw up Drizzt and like mess him up, I mean it's 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 really fucked up. Like in the context, so so yeah. So he he kills the goblin thing and then is basically thrown into the academy, which I want to point out is like if Hogwarts were super duper evil.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, right? Mixed in with like a tiny bit of Hunger Games with their like freaking inter-year fight match to the unconscious or whatever.
0: Yeah, they, they have a, a giant brawl at the, I guess, beginning of every school year, which also there are nine school years in the school. And it's, I mean, that makes sense because Drower's so long lived, but oh my God, imagine being in like high school for nine years, that would be miserable. They have this giant... Basically, melee brawl at the beginning of the school year to in order to rank the students. Uh, Driz gets knocked out by some moron that he trusts in his first year to like, you know, to team up with him. And it's like you see from a mile away. It's like, dude obviously you shouldn't trust this guy he's definitely going to double cross you and then he double crosses him and Driz learns another lesson but it's also painfully obvious and you're kind of have to that's a lot of what this book is to a, to a large degree at the early start it's you can call it homeland colon Driz learns a lesson because
1: that's, <laughs> a of that's so true oh my gosh Getting back to the serious business here. So basically, I'm not going to walk you all through the steps, but I'm just going to tell you, Drist is a god. After his first little misstep, he basically gets serious, starts whooping asses, is ranked eighth in his class the first year, and just becomes like a little titan among men. He is fighting in brawls that are way ahead of his year. He is just a little beast. And he uh, spends some time with doing some patrols and learning more kind of about what his place in the drow society will be. More importantly, uh, Driss, first of all, shows that he's just a compassionate being because a little girl goes missing. Everyone thinks he's a princess. He, like, tries to protect her. She gets killed. And then he goes ham and, like, fucks up some hook whores. It was legit. And then all the other patrol people arrive and they're basically like, why did you break formation and kill all these hook whores? Like, what's going on? And he's like, well, I was trying to save the little girl. And they're like, well, yeah, we were too, but there's a proper way in order to do it. Like, are you kidding me right now?
0: Originally, they think the girl is from, like, I think the first ruling family and so everyone's really worried about it and then once they see oh she's she's a nobody from some no nobody house and everyone's just like oh well who cares why why would we even bother then and he finds that to be disturbing because you know obviously it is everyone's life is valuable but yeah it's it's a very it's again another one of those steps on the path to realizing just how evil the the society is.
1: Each step, man, a little bit closer. All right, let's talk about this graduation ceremony. Dig in there.
0: So at the end of his all of his years, they throw this graduation ceremony, and it happens in the – so we should say the academy is – there's the fighter school, the magic school, and then, of course, the priestess school, the school to Loth, who, who, where the priestesses – it's only the women go to train since it's the matriarchy. At the graduation ceremony every year – it's basically they get high on some unspecified like gas or something and then have a giant orgy (laughs) and it is so weird and so messed up and there is it's not shown explicitly but it is heavily implied that the highest ranking priestess has sex with a demon that gets summoned and you're just like well this certainly came out of nowhere because up until this time it wasn't I would say a child friendly book but it was certainly like you know PG-13 and then you go like full rated R like demon orgy and it's like what wh- where did this come from and of course Driz refuses to to participate in this as you know any sane person probably would and his sister finds out that he is refusing to participate and basically drags him outside the city and throws his ass into a drider pit <laughs>
1: Yeah, good time. She's basically like, you're weak, get the fuck in there.
0: We get a very brief but kind of neat battle with some dryders, which we saw actually in the last book that we read in the Mastika trilogy, which I think honestly does a much better job of, of showing the driders. They're very cool monsters, but they do get kind of short shrift here. Drizzt is ultimately saved kind of in a very silly, like, well, we have to save him. So he he gets saved by his mother who believes that you know there there are better things that he could be that he could do even if he has produced a misstep this time and in refusing to go to the demon orgy
1: i also think that it's funny that she is portrayed as like not the nicest of the sisters because that's uh maya but also not like the super bitch sister she's not the one of the three that i expected to be like whoop into the pit you go
0: so then after he graduates from because he is allowed to graduate eventually after he does graduate from the academy we move on and he's kind of in this sort of in between phase where it's like you know you're in your 20s you don't really know what to do but he basically gets drafted into becoming part of a patrol group that patrols the outer edges of the city and this of course is where we meet guinevere his you know we all know about guinevere now but this was kind of the origin story of of where he meets his his Panther buddy.
1: Yeah. May Soge, back in the day when he killed the nameless one, faceless one. The faceless one. He stole the idol that held Guinevere. And he uses Guinevere on one of the patrols. And Driss and her are just instantly like, Oh my gosh, we fight so well together. We insta-homies. And so Driss basically starts to convince Massage to let him spend time with Guinevere practicing fighting tactics and all these things and kind of building this underlying relationship that will ultimately be the downfall between massage and Guinevere
0: yeah it's really a love at first sight thing it's kind of it's kind of cute
1: yeah as that's going on we see their relationship developing we also start to see that Housewardden and house Hannette are beginning to prepare for battle. And that the ruling council basically has no plans to intercede. They're kind of like, well, whoever wins wins, and uh, we'll just deal with that when it happens.
0: Yeah, so, they take a very hands-off approach.
1: <laughs> yeah, they do. That's kind of happening and simmering under the surface. Or under the surface. This is my least favorite scene in the book. Like, I understand why it had to happen, but I still hate this scene. This is probably the most important scene of the book, which is that. To appease the goddess Loth before this big war, the family decides that they are going to send a raiding party to the surface to kill surface elves, which is exactly what happens. Big ass group of drow get together and they ascend their way to the surface and some nice little elves are trying to have a little moon festival. And the drow just show up and wreck shit and just murder them all.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a very violent. Another one of these very violent scenes.
1: Scene.
0: Driz manages he doesn't kill anyone, obviously, but he does manage to save the daughter of one of the elves. And which in the far in the future of these books, that it it actually comes back around to be pretty important that he he saved her. But we'll. We won't get into that now. It's a very violent raid, and they basically just slaughter all these, all the elves, the which they call fairies. It is really you kind know what? of this. I just
1: want to say, like, as an asterisk, all of the drow hate the quote unquote fairies because the entire time they're in the academy, literally every single day, they spend hours getting told that all their problems in their life are singularly connected to the fairies, and it's the fairies' fault that anything wrong with their life is the fairies' fault. So this kind of deep hatred is not just something that they kind of decided upon. Like it has been taught to them and ingrained in them from the time they are learning how to speak. They are taught to hate these people.
0: Yeah, and even to a large degree Driz actually believes this and thinks like okay, well now I'm finally going to see the the people who have caused my my pe- my people so much pain. And of course, obviously the surface elves are, you know, for the most part pretty good people and it's not like that at all and this is really the central turning point. This you I wouldn't say it's the climax, but it is certainly a the main like character climax for Driz where he realizes, "Oh no, like my people are just totally unredeemably evil." And I, I am trapped in this society, and I don't know what I'm going to do because everything I've been taught is a lie, and these, these people are all awful and evil. And therefore, also, uh, Zach, my father, is probably pretty evil, too, and that begins to eat at him quite a bit.
1: Yeah, they return from the hunt, and everyone's boasting about how great it went. And so it's kind of interesting because Zach feels like, dang, the Academy really got to dress like he's not the boy that he used to be. And he's such a great fighter that if they've really gotten to him, like, he's going to be an unstoppable killing machine, so I have to stop him for, like, the sake of fucking everybody. I have to kill him. And then inversely, you've got Drist over here going, man, I can't believe that, like, this guy who raised me is actually super evil and he's a really good fighter. And if he's working for my mom, like, I bet they're doing a bunch of evil shit. And, like, now I got to kill him. And, like, it's very interesting because they're kind of wanting to now – Kill each other because of their similarities and their differences on their worldviews.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think at one point Driz comes to believe that his dad slaughtered a bunch of children, which he obviously finds abhorrent, and that's not actually true. But you know, it there's a lot of what is the phrase? There's a lot of dramatic irony going on between the two of them. In a lot of ways, their dynamic is probably the most interesting.
1: Oh, by far and away, part of, of the, the story in the
0: book. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, I think, because you have Drizzt, who is someone who is so new to this this world. He refuses to accept his the circumstances that he is born into, that his given his given life, and that's what makes him different from Zach. Because Zach has accepted his life; he's just kind of learned to get on with things. And he he is kind of he is kind of an evil person. He's kind of a bad Getting- person.
1: I don't really think he's evil. I think he's just become jaded. I think that he wants to be like Driss, but he didn't have an ally like Driss does in him. And so he got jaded to the fact that this is just how it's got to be yeah not like it he just gotta live
0: with it. That's probably a better way to put it, but they you know they they present two not i wouldn't even say two sides of the same well maybe two sides of the same coin, but they're two they're very steps similar on the same
1: road perhaps
0: right they 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 differ slightly, and it's just enough to make them to make their kind of them facing off against each other interesting and in, and in how they differ in their their views of the world their their own personal moralities i guess
1: absolutely. So on their way, on a patrol, I believe, the party randomly gets attacked by some gnomes. And basically the highlight of this whole scene is that Massage gets caught in a trap and stuck halfway in the ground and has to be like magic his ass out. And he's embarrassed So then he releases Guinevere and forces her to basically go down and hunt down every single gnome that she can find, which she does not want to do. And that's very evident to Driss. Like, he can tell that she is suffering by being forced into having to hunt these creatures. And that really is... Kind of the breaking point between Massage and Guinevere. Like up to this point, she's only questionably been his. But at this point, and she understands that Driss sees that she's suffering and he's empathetic to her. She no longer has any sort of connection to her previous master. She's kind of a free agent right now.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's interesting to the the scene because Driz realizes oh massage is also trying to kill me like he launches a fireball at it or a lightning bolt at him and it becomes pretty evident that someone it sort of reveals the ruse that someone is gunning for the Duerdan family and if it's massage then it's probably the hunnettes and that you know that is kind of revealed and we very quickly i mean this is it's kind of all downhill from here we very quickly move towards the end of the book actually
1: yeah, absolutely. Because Drist, after the after they get out of the tunnels, he goes home and tells his mom, basically like, Oi, this asshole tried to kill me! And they're like, Are you fucking kidding me? And he's like, Nah, blood, that's what's up. So the ladies all get up in a tizzy about it. He goes and finds Zach, and the pair of them show down, which, by the way, is just a fantastic fight scene. Yeah, all of it. However, they're having touchy feeling moments. And basically, Zach's like, I can't believe that you'd kill children. And just is like, bitch, I don't kill children, you kill children. And Zach's like, I don't kill children. Just like, I don't kill kids either. And then, and then, then Zach's like, "Oh, my son!" And then, happy, happy, joy, joy.
0: Yeah, Driz, Driz definitely has some daddy issues. <laughs> oh sure. no, oh,
1: that's putting it mildly.
0: It's also very like, oh, they reconcile, and it's it's also like you're noticing it's getting pretty close to the end of the book, and it's pretty heavy foreshadowing at that point that oh Zach's probably about to die, isn't he? Because oh, they just shit's reconciled. about to go down. Yeah.
1: Yes, because if nothing else, Salvatore has very clearly up to this point. Illustrated to you step by step that Drist is not allowed to in this world have anything good, anything yeah. that makes him happy, anything good, because as soon as it happens, it will get taken from him. And so I agree that this is definitely foreshadowing, like, oh, you're happy that you and your dad reconciled. Hmm, that's cute. So <laughs> basically, Drist goes for he a little walk about. Yeah, he and
0: wonders out.
1: We find out that his family has fallen out of favor because he didn't kill the elven child and his family wants to sacrifice him. Well, Zach gets word of the, or wind of this and is basically like, LOL, not blood, I'll take that hit. Pulls a Katniss and is like, I I volunteer as tribute and gets freaking, (laughs) gets freaking sacrificed like straight up. Meanwhile, Drist is like halfway across the city. He and Alton and Masog are like having a little battle because Guinevere shows up, finds Driss, and is basically like silently, it's time. So they go together and Well, so
0: Guinevere originally tries to kill him because was told to by Massage, but obviously, and there's a whole convoluted thing about how Driz gets caught by a cave and, and Guinevere basically saves him, and then it's a little bit corny that it's like, oh, their love broke the spell, and, you know, Driz wins her over, but you do make a good point that they're kind of building towards this a little bit with Guinevere sort of her, her loyalty being eroded away to Massage, but, yeah, it is it is one of these things where, like, the love breaks the spell in the end, and... Yeah, I know. Uh,
1: That corny fantasy book moment right there. But it does, and I'm glad that it does because then he and Guinevere go in and whoop some ass on Alton and Massage, killing both of them, by the way, because they're badasses. And then they go home because they're like, oh, that was fun and exciting. And his family's basically like, where have you been? He's like, oh, I just killed these assholes. And they're like, oh, that's fantastic. And then he's like, hey, where's my dad? And they're like, lol, we sacrificed him. Yeah, and, uh, it's a
0: very, it's it's actually a very cool. dramatic ending there in the throne room, because, like, he's very slowly figuring out, like, what's happening, because they're all acting really weird, trying not to scare him off, and then he whips out this ball of light spell that he uses to blind everyone, and then run off, and that's, like, basically the end of the book, I mean, it shows him leaving the city, but, you know, that's really it.
1: Yep, he's basically like, well... Uh, Guinevere and I, we, we in the dusty trail off on our own. Here we go. And that's it.
0: It's a, like we said, it's a really quick read, but also the story is very actually small in scope. It's not one of these, you know, like we've been reading a lot of, and I think you just tend to get a lot of in, in the Forgotten Realms where it's this giant world ending catastrophe. No, this is a very, it's like, it's a small, like family story. Personal book. Yeah, it's a very personal book. So, so yeah, that's actually it's a it's a pretty quick ending too. It ends a little abruptly, but also it is still paced very well because the second book opens. Exile opens up with yeah, Exile opens up with him traveling through the Underdark, and so there's no real good way to transition that. So I think maybe ending this one, boom, he leaves the city with his pet, and then we're out, and and that's the end of uh, of Homeland. Yeah,
1: I mean Salvatore sure knows how to how to end a book.
0: Yeah, yeah, his endings have been on the whole, I think, fairly decent, except for I will say, except for Halfling's Gym, which, I again, I will just say that is the worst, most rushed ending to a book I think we've read. Yeah, <laughs> other that than that, great. though, they've been pretty good. Yeah. So I'm... any any critiques, any other thoughts on 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 different parts of the book? I have a few other things, but I think we covered most of it.
1: Man, I mean, I usually hit on my critiques as I'm talking because. I do all the talking during the plot points, so I can talk about whatever the hell I want, (laughs) including my critiques. However, I will say this. I think that as books go for being D&D novels, this is one of the most accessible books to read because I do think that, as you were saying earlier, Kind of that undercurrent of being bullied and identifying with the main character. I think that that's a universal enough concept and it's written well enough that you could introduce this book to anyone. Like You could not give someone any context and just be like... Just read this book. Just go into it with an open mind and just read this book. And I think most people would like it. I think that it's very well written.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's extremely accessible. And it's really not a very D&D, D&D book. I mean, there's exactly. obviously tons of fantasy tropes. But it's not a very traditional D&D novel in the way that we've read you know, the last, however, 15 books or whatever it is now. Yeah, yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. Any negatives? Anything you didn't like about it necessarily?
1: um I feel like yes actually I do have a very major complaint which is that there's not a single redeeming female in this book like you're going to make the vast majority of the cast female and then not give me one redeeming female that's kind of fucked
0: yeah all the women are pretty thoroughly evil in the book and and that actually hits on something that I have come to kind of have an issue with with some of the forgotten realm stuff and especially with the drow is i'm kind of over the stereotypical like this entire race of creatures is evil i i don't know it just it's so one dimensional and uninteresting to me at this point like it when i run my dnd games i don't make drow just wholly evil like they can be outcasts and they can be kind of shunned maybe a little bit because people don't understand them but to just say like they're an entire society of completely maliciously evil beings that's not in back when this came out yes that would have been a cool concept but i think it's it's pretty tired at this point and i'm glad that salvatore is mostly moved away from that you know reading this with 20 gosh almost 2020 2019 eyes it it definitely is a little tired it's like okay well it's just that's not really how most places work necessarily at least most like modern western societies work so i i do get a little kind of
1: think about it is and this is the hard part, right? Because the Underdark is written to be so limited in that there's only a few major cities, Menzo Berenza being the major drow one. And I think that it would have been one thing if he had said, you know, like, there's five major cities and this one is the fucking evil one. Like, this is just the shithole. And then throughout the story, we, like, visited other drow societies and saw that, yes, the drow were misunderstood and there was a lot more to them than just what we saw in Menzo Berenza. But... Because we don't get that view, and because we are trying to say that this race as a whole is evil, I think that is where kind of you're saying the downfall is. I think that we would have been much better served saying, like, hey, this is the few bad apples spoiling the bunch. This is the really scary city, not. All of them are evil because these guys are assholes.
0: Yeah, and really, I, this is what took because this was kind of the the template for what Drow are. And we get a lot we get in other books different views of other cities, but menzo Menzoberranzan is the largest Drow city. I think early in the book it says there's something like twenty thousand Drow there, which really are not is not that many people for in terms of size of the city. You know, Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter I think are probably larger, but. It's uh it definitely stuck as the template for the drow. Yeah, I'm just kinda I'm just kinda over it. <laughs> I d that doesn't do anything for me anymore. It's not terrible, but it's not great either.
1: Anyway, I wanna hear about your critiques though.
0: Yeah, I mean I think on the whole this is just a fantastically well plotted book it it reads like a movie which is is fun especially when it comes to fantasy the pacing is just great and i've talked about all kinds of other stuff i like about it but my biggest complaints i think i've hit on other than and this is also again 2019 eyes having going back and rereading this and have knowing what drow are and knowing about the society and going and and re re re-experiencing all this is like Riz' earnestness and naivete is just a little bit like on the nose, too much. Like he kind of comes there are certain points in this book where he kind of comes off as a bit of an idiot for not really seeing how evil uh his kin are. And, you know, we're we're of course again reading this, knowing everything about it, which definitely makes it hard to to see it blind. I'm sure if you were if you gave this to a you know, a 12, eleven or twelve year old now and ask them to read it, they'd, you know, they'd feel probably not too dissimilar from how we felt about it when we first read it, those of us who read it when we were younger. But it's it's a little hard to read it in that sense. But also I can see the counterarguments of that that says if you grow up in a, you know, in a society for twenty plus years and that's all you know, then yes, it's going to kind of you're gonna want to latch on to the belief that, oh well, these people aren't evil. I mean, how can how can everything I know and everything I've been brought up to to understand, how can that all be evil and how can it all be corrupt and malicious? And I would have to leave all of that behind. And that's an incredibly scary thing to have to contend with and to have to, to say. I mean it's an, it's an incredibly brave thing obviously that he does at the end of the book is to decide that he is going to leave all this behind, everything he has ever known to go out into a world that basically – we'll just want to kill him <laughs> and you know i can see both sides of Yeah, I mean, especially I
1: when you think about that he's only like 28 or 29 at the end of this book and i mean that in the grand scope of his life and what he's going to do and accomplish is so small. I mean, that's seriously like asking a 15-year-old to do this, like it's crazy. Is that yeah, very again, admirable?
0: I, yeah, and i again i think that's partly why it comes back to appealing to uh, to teenagers. So, Paula, i think i know what you're going to say, but would you recommend this book?
1: <laughs> of course.
0: Yeah, I, I would recommend it too. I think it's probably one of the best books we've read so far. I would highly recommend it to any any young adult readers, any any, probably anyone from the age of about nine or ten up to you know fifteen sixteen could could easily enjoy this book. Um, I know I certainly did when I read it on car trips uh, uh, during the summer vacations as a kid. So I'm kidding. I enjoyed
1: this book as an adult, no shame.
0: Yeah, no, no, not at all. I'm just saying I think it's a good a good intro to these stories as well in in a lot of ways. So, yeah, so I think that's going to wrap up our, our discussion of Homeland and I am excited to get to Exile, which is the next book in the series. And then Sojourn after that, I I haven't reread those as recently as I have reread as I have reread Home, Homeland a, a few years ago. So I'm curious to see how well those hold up. Before we actually end the show today, because this is our last show of the year, we're going to get this out here at the end of December 2019, I actually want to do a year interview and just go over, you know, how our thinking may have evolved on some of these books or how they've aged in our minds and just kind of go back through the the different books and the different shows that we've done this year. So going all the way back to February, which seems like so long ago now, I guess, is we did Pool of Radiance is what kicked off the year. And... Again, this was one of my favorite books, going back to having read it in when I was in community college and it you know it doesn't hold up great, but in my mind it still sir it still sits in a very warm place and you know i I can definitely see its faults a lot more clearly now, but you know it still it still gives me the warm fuzzies whenever I think about it has what do you, how do you feel about Pool of radiance now that we're coming to the end of the year paula
1: man honestly <laughs> I can't even remember that book like <laughs> Uh, it did not stick out in my mind, which is good because that tells me it was a passable book because I only remember books that were like a 10 out of 10 for me or that were like a three or less out of 10 for me. So the fact that I don't remember it means it hit the middle ground. And for that time frame, that's a compliment.
0: OK, well, that's yeah. You know, I could see how for a lot of the Forgotten Realms books, you know, if you're middle ground, if you're pretty middle of the road. That is kind of a compliment because there are a lot of crappy books that we
1: actually do.
0: Yeah, so then we went we did not quite hit our stride that this this year until a little bit midway through. So in April we did The Halflings Gym, and I think I've already made my thoughts on this book known well enough throughout this episode of the podcast. I I do not like The Halflings Gym. I don't think it's a good book. I don't think anyone I think if you read the the Icewind Dale trilogy and basically stopped at the End of the first book, you'd be good. Like, you don't really need to read the rest of that trilogy. But, Paula, what, how do you feel about the Halfling's Gem?
1: Uh, I also did not enjoy the Halfling's Gem, as we know. Yeah, I'm it's... not afraid to admit that I did not enjoy it.
0: Yeah. However, I, think...
1: I enjoyed a lot of his other stuff.
0: So, so. Right. No author is without fault. Like, Salvatore has his good and his bad, and Halfling's Gem was part of his first trilogy, and I think you can kind of give it to him. Like, yeah, whatever. It's not a great book, but now that we've seen like Homeland is, you know, a pretty great start to a second trilogy, you know, it's it's kind of a gimme there. So in June we did Wyvern Spur, which was so out good. of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was I think it was one of the best things we've read this year, if not the best. It was a it was surprisingly good. It was it's the second book of the it came after Azure Bonds and whatever trilogy that is. And, yeah, man, I, Wyvern Spur is, is a dang good book for being a very, like, no one – has ever ever talks about this book when you talk about good forgotten realms novels
1: so underrated it is that's just god that's a good that's one of those books that you forget about and then someone says it and you're like damn that is a good book you know what i mean
0: yeah it's got a it's got a really neat story it's again also a very small scale story comparing it to something like homeland and it's a really funny book too like there's a lot of surprisingly really funny humor in it so yeah, I think for... that
1: kind of the reason that and Homeland are so successful is that a lot of these writers, comparatively to where they're at now, were just so young in their writing career. And I think that the content that they were trying to capture with some of these grander stories, they just didn't have the skills to back it up yet because they were so young in their writing. I think that, that when we were able to focus on single characters and really flesh them out, that was where we found kind of those diamonds in the rough.
0: And really, anytime you have a character based story, it's a much more enjoyable story. But yeah, no, I think you're definitely right. It, it's early on in a lot of these writers career. And then very appropriate that the next month in July, we had our interview with uh, with Jeff Grubb, who is the author of Wyvern Spur. And that was that was a hell of a lot of fun to do. Jeff was, was so nice and so generous with his time and all of his different stories.
1: Jeff was a kick in the pants. I had a great time talking to him.
0: Yeah, so uh then in August we moved back into our books and we started we did Ironhelm, the first of the Mastika trilogy and yeah, I don't I don't need to read that book ever again. It certainly wasn't as bad as the uh, next book in the trilogy, but it's it's not a good book.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that.
0: Yeah, I could not still recommend that. Uh September, we were really hitting our stride. We did Horse Lords, which again, a surprisingly very good book. It really kind of took gonna us by say, surprise. Actually,
1: I was good with that one. That one I would still recommend.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has its moments of eh, this isn't that great, but a lot like a lot of these books where it's kind of over explaining things and over describing things and saying things over and over again that it's been said before earlier in the book. A lot of these books have that problem. Horse Lords and, and Homeland has that problem, too. But yeah, a surprisingly good book, again, because it focuses on these really interesting characters that you don't see a lot of, especially in, in most of the Forgotten Realms we uh, we skipped october cuz it was kind of a funny month but then we did come back in november with both Dragonwall and Viperhand Dragonwall the sequel to Horse Lords and overall not as strong a follow up it's one of those where oh i see like how this could have been really great and the actually the back like third of Dragonwall i think is a pretty good book it's pretty compelling especially because you've been with the main character for so long at the same time it gives real short shrift to that uh, Juan or whatever the female character is she gets I don't like what happens to her in that book. But yeah, kind of a, it's a real 50-50 book for me.
1: Yeah, we start kind of getting into books where, just honestly, quite frankly, the whole Horse Lords and the whole Mastika trilogy, I just wanted them, like, I think the Horse Lords really showed us the shortcomings in the Mastica trilogies, but I still think they both could have been a hell of a lot better.
0: And then we have viper hand which we read at the end of november and it's the less i think the less said about that the better it's not even as good as Ironhelm. it's not a great book it's got a a bonkers insane ending to it where they destroy an entire city but that's really probably about the best you can say about it
1: yeah it just we'll just move on we didn't read that book yeah, moving on
0: yeah we'll we'll pretend we read it there's there's no evidence right
1: <laughs> right so
0: and then of course december we're closing out the year with homeland we've already said everything we need to about this book it's a uh, you know for a realms book it's pretty dang good yeah i think that was our year this, this is the most books we've read in a in a single year it's uh, the most listeners the most listens and downloads we've had in a single year what? i think we've with when we release this episode it's probably going to give us as many if not more downloads and listens uh, than we had in our first 2 years combined so we're we're really hitting our stride right as we're about to go on hiatus
1: <laughs> I'm so proud guys
0: yeah, so again, thank you to everyone who uh, who has listened and and chimed in this year and downloaded the episodes and and told their friends about it and all that stuff because it's been a real huge year for the podcast and I just wanted to go over everything that we've read again because that's, you know, that's the whole point. We're we're reading all these these crazy silly fantasy books. The one last thing I want to hit on before we before we go uh, for the end of the year is that like I mentioned just a second ago we are actually going on hiatus. Um, we're taking January and February at the very least off. I am getting married in February, so I need to take some time away from the podcast and be able to focus on all, everything that goes into organizing a wedding uh, and help my, my fiance out with, be able to devote more time to helping her out with everything. So we're taking we're taking some time off. We may be back in March. We may not. Um, we may be back in April or sometime in the summer, uh, hopefully by the summer, because I, I like a good summer fantasy read. That's that's some of my favorite, favorite things to do. So um, hopefully by the summer, but possibly sooner, maybe later. I don't know. We're not going to put a date on it. One other thing that we're going to do is when we do come back, we will not be putting out an episode every month because it has kind of killed me to have to read one of these books a month. To be perfectly honest, I have not gotten a lot of time to do reading for pleasure. I've had to kind of burn through these books at my very slow reading pace. And I really, I really burned the midnight oil to get through Dragonwall and Viper Hand and Homeland in the last uh, two months, basically, uh, even with being a little bit ahead on reading. So, yeah, we are going to move to an every other month format for uh, the foreseeable future when we do come back and apologies to people who who like hearing from us every month but we will we will be putting out regular episodes they will just be fewer number and you know what I say this now, that could change too. I don't know. I, I'm just a little bit burnt out at the moment. But, you know, I could change my mind because doing this podcast is a hell of a lot of fun. And the people who listen to it are really into it and love hearing from us. And we love hearing from them too. So, yeah, just that's just an update for going into 2020. Hopefully it's another big year for us. And there's, there's going to be a lot of good books to read next year, Paul. I'll tell you that.
1: I'm excited. We're starting to get into some of the good
0: stuff yeah now that we're getting into the uh into kind of the early the chunkier early 90s we're gonna hit a lot of good Salvatore, and i think ed greenwood should be making a reappearance here before too long hopefully and yeah some some other stuff i don't have the list up in front of me right now but yeah we should be hitting some good books the early the early stuff is rough once we get out of Maztica and the horde lands with horse lords i think it's a little bit smoother sailing because those trilogies are not very well looked upon for for some very valid reasons <laughs> mm mm-hmm, right. Yeah. They got
1: overshadowed for a reason.
0: Yeah, I think it's true. Horse Lords notwithstanding. I, I'll, I'll go out and I'll live for Horse Lords anytime, but the rest of those trilogies, maybe not so much. Yeah, I think that's going to close us out for this episode and for 2019 And, you know, again, we want to say thank you to everyone who listened and downloaded and told their friends and spread the word and was just a fan this year. Um, You know, we do this for them just as much as we do it for ourselves and for our love of these books and for the Forgotten Realms and for these authors who are all very fantastically creative people and are doing things you know, as much as we criticize these books a lot of the time, getting a book published is one of the hardest things you can possibly do as a creative person. And they certainly deserve, even when we don't like the books, and we don't necessarily think they're agree with a lot of the choices that are made in them, they, I, they still have my respect for being the creative people who are able to publish these books and, and make that happen because, you know, I've never published anything. So I have a lot of respect for people who have. So I just want to, I always like to, to point that out because sometimes we're a little harsh on these guys, but you know, in the end we do, we do this because we, we love reading the books and we love Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Absolutely. And just because it sucks doesn't mean we didn't read it.
0: Right. Saying. <laughs> we're going to read it. Even, even if it sucks, we, <laughs> we are there for all of them because that's the crazy thing we decided to do.
1: crazy thing i let you talk me into
0: yep and now you're stuck with it
1: (laughs) yeah right
0: i think we're gonna call it there and we'll just say as always thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon
1: bye guys